Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Astrid Naranko, otherwise known as the Anti-Diet Dietitian. Astrid is a registered dietitian, originally from Venezuela, but now practicing in Australia. Astrid's practice focuses on working with predominantly female clients, and today we're going to discuss some of the unique challenges women face when trying to lose weight, and particularly the effect of the menstrual cycle on planning a woman's diet. Let's talk science. Um, so just for anybody who might not be familiar with who you are, would you be able to give us a little bit of an introduction as to who you are uh, and what you do, please? So my name is Astrid, as you might know, uh, the, the anti-diet dietitian. Um, I'm a accredited, accredited practicing dietitian here in Australia. I graduated uh, as a dietitian eight years ago in South America, Venezuela, for few people that might speak Spanish there. I know you speak a little bit Spanish too. Just a little um, bit. Yeah. Um, so I came from Venezuela six years ago. Um, once I graduated as a dietitian back home, I did two years, around two years of private practice, uh, nutrition workshops, um, education, um, a lot of different activities as an entrepreneur. Then when I came here to Australia, I pretty much relearned the English language for about a year. So I studied really well academic English, and then I started my master's degree for two and a half years. So two years ago, I graduated from the master's degree, and I've been working uh, in, a private, in a private hospital as a dietitian, clinical dietitian, the part-time, and I use my other parts part-time uh, to actually do the the work I do for social media. I work on my infographics. I do um, lots of different uh, online business. So I do pretty much my nutrition coaching online business, um, pretty much orientated and focused on women's health and really open to to help anyone that needs nutrition coaching, but uh, it's being focused mostly on women. So okay. yeah, that's that's me. Fantastic. And I'm an exercise addict. I'm a personal trainer too, and an exercise addict. I I think it's um it's really really well it's potentially important that um people working in the industry um do have a passion for and of their own diet and nutrition as well. Um, I'm not saying everybody needs to be a personal trainer, but I think it really, really is a benefit if you have that extra side um, and that extra kind of level of depth to your service where you know about, you know, just how to train and the importance of training and nutrition around training as well. Um, so that's absolutely fantastic. Um, so I don't know many um, Venezuelan dietitians. Um, so I was just wondering... Um, Obviously, now you, you, you've been working in Australia for quite a while, but are there any major differences in, let's say, practicing as a dietitian in Venezuela and practicing in, in Australia? Definitely, there's obviously the, the health systems of both countries are completely different. Uh, there's much more regulations and things to uh, comply with when it comes to um, practicing in Australia, there's very strict regulations and you need to have, like, with the D DAA, so the, the Dietitians Association Australia, you gotta be, um, renovate your, um, your credentials every year. You have to com uh, comply with, um, CPD or like professional develop development points, uh, at least 30 points a year. So you gotta be continuing to do like workshops, uh, conferences, you gotta be up to date. Whereas back home, uh, there was um, some sort of association, association as well, but it wasn't that strict or like you didn't have to uh, renovate your credentials every year. Um, and pretty much when I graduated, I started doing my own private practice. So there's much less regulations or things to comply with. You just, you're a accredited dietitian and you do whatever you want. But here is like, you gotta do stuff more seriously and like you, you gotta go through a process from being, once you 
are get the credentials to get like a provisional um, credentials of uh, dietitian, accredited practicing dietitian, and then once you have the probation of the of one year that you have a supervisor or someone, a mentor that you get to communicate with and show that you've done that, you go, you move the year after to the official accredited practicing dietitian. So that's where I'm at now. Thank God I'm not, no longer a provisional. But um, then you can progress if you do like PhD or you contribute to like the body of knowledge of nutrition. Um, with the, 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 the association, you can go to advanced accredited practice in dietitian. So that's kind of something that goes a little bit more like another level. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I know, obviously, with all of those regulations, it, it, does make, um, it does make working a little bit more complex in that you constantly need to be updating your knowledge, you constantly need to be doing CPD. Um, and, you know, the, just the responsibility is probably considerably higher. Obviously, that makes business harder, but it's also probably and hopefully um, – maintaining a better educated and a, a, a more capable dietitian oh, workforce. Definitely. Would that be right? Oh, definitely. The level here is quite high and it's also very competitive. Like you, like there's no many uh, jobs uh, available and like when one is available, it's like everyone running to it and competing against each other. And, Mostly because dietetics is surrounded by women, there's very little uh, amount of of guys within this profession. It is like everyone just fighting against each other. Women are just nasty. Yeah. Right. I am. I am not. I am not going to comment on that at all because I want to be able to walk out and show my face in public. Um, so one thing I, I, I wanted to ask was, so obviously you, you did mention women um, tend to make up a really, really large proportion of the dietitians out there and, and the kind of the body of dietitians. But just for you yourself, what was it specifically that got you into nutrition? What kind of made you decide that you wanted to go down that, that path and get into uh, dietetics? Do you want the short or the long version? Well, we can do something in between if you want. <laughs> Well, it is it is hard to say what really motivated me because like when I was when I was little I used to be um a bit chunky uh but at the same time I was kind of I had a really good self esteem self esteem and like I would walk in the streets because I used to live in a third world country like men in the street would like or say something so I was like oh I feel good today. I was like feeling really good about compliments. But one day I was walking in the street and someone, oh, said just from nowhere, oh, she's so, so pretty, but she's fat. I'm like, what? And I was so, so impressed and shocked that just that comment coming out of nowhere made me go to the gym. So I started going to the gym the day after, straight away. Um, and that was at 12. I had 12 years old when I, when it, when that happened. Obviously, um, when I started going to the gym, um, I was, became so passionate about exercise. I really liked it. Um, so I was pretty much going to the gym every day, was doing classes, exercising, and I did lose weight over time. I started doing weight training and everything from 12 years old. One, when I got around 15 years old, I did kind of my first certification as a personal trainer. And I started teaching 15, 16 year old, 16 years old in a, in a like fitness group classes. So like fit combat, uh, taebo, all of that thing, like, uh, boxing, this sort of type of train classes. And then I started certificating in everything. I did yoga, I did Pilates, I did steps, I did everything you can imagine, TRX, I did all of that. So I was like 
very diversified in all the fitness classes. And at the same time, I was studying at, um, at college and decided that, you know what, I want to really know why so many people, especially uh, here in the fitness industry, just give, just plain diets to everyone. It seems to like they just have one diet that gives to everyone. And I don't think that's the best approach. Oh, I don't know what, it's, it's weird. I don't know. I obviously didn't have the knowledge back then. I just had a hypothesis. So for me, it was like, oh, I don't, I'm not too sure. I think I really want to know, understand metabolism, and I want to learn more about why, what affects the metab metabolism, what makes people get, gain weight uh, or lose weight. So I was thinking uh, outside the box at that at that time at that point in time and then i decided that you know what i want to either be physiotherapist or dietitian something related to uh, physical health um and my credential my like my average uh my my grades allowed me to apply from uh, for dietetics in the medicine school and that's where i started all my journey started Wow, that, like, um, uh, go on. Along the way, the, that's the long, that, the long version, um, I started obsessing so much about numbers, calories, that I got like a very severe, unhealthy relationship with food. So that's the, when I already had, was already maybe 18. I was in, uh, in the middle of my career. And I got very obsessed with my body. I was having perfectly feeling really good. I was feeling my six pack. I was looking really good, but I was going to the extremes. Like I would avoid social uh, relationship uh, to prevent going to going eating out. For me, it was just a stress. Um, I would use. I don't know, any sort of method to prevent gaining weight. And when I ate something that was fried or had some, a bit of oil or fat or carbohydrates, I was just freaked out. And I already thought that that fat was in my thighs straight away. So when disconnection from what I knew, because I knew that obviously that didn't happen, but it was my, my other, my other me saying, I don't care what you know. I just care that I don't want you to get fat. So that that beat lasted for a few years. And when I came to Australia six years ago, I think because I no longer had the pressure of being the role model, the trainer, the dietitian that was running workshops and everyone knew. And here, no one knew me. I said, like, you know what? I'm just going to relax a bit. Because here I'm no one. So I kind of let myself go and gain some weight, but allow myself to eat things that I wouldn't eat before. Um, and I think that one, that thing, that events made me realize uh, that my, my relationship with food wasn't great. So I started fixing that. And over time, I actually... Uh, feel much more empowered and obviously no longer have these thoughts of, oh, if I allow myself to eat a little bit of something that I enjoy, um, I'm not going to get fat or I'm not going to stress about eating something I know I'm going to enjoy and just move on, keep on track. So, yeah, it was really hard. Like, I, I think that that comments that you you got on the street back in Venezuela, like that, that's an absolutely horrible thing um, for a child, because you said you were 12 years old, for a 12 year old to hear that, that must be incredibly like um, impactful on, on an influential on a child's development. Like you said, like you, you got into, you started going to the gym straight away after that, which is, it's amazing. Um, like, and I, I do think that like for a lot of people, they kind of need 
let's say um, uh, there's an author, James Fell, and he has a book. It's called the, I think it's the the Holy Shit Moment or something like that. Um, and it's just basically a, a very, very impactful moment in your life that kind of makes people um, make a change. But I think he is speaking more about changes that need to happen, whereas you were a 12-year-old child, um, and it's probably not, you know, it, yeah, it's not a good message for a 12-year-old child to get. Um, what you said about you kind of getting into the number side of things and um, and developing, let's say, a poor relationship with food, I think that's something that happens to a lot of people who get into this industry. Um, and I really, really think that getting out of that oneself is incredibly important because I, I think just from my own experience, you know, just knowing some other people in the industry, I get the impression that some people do a very, very good job of transposing their own disordered eating, let's say, onto other people and their own um, neuroticisms about uh, eating onto other people. And it's just not beneficial. So I think having people like yourself who um, have kind of, you know, you got to a point where you realized that your relationship with food wasn't as good as you wanted it to be and you worked on improving that. I think that, you know, from a coaching perspective makes you, just all the better because you know what to look out for and you know how to um, help people avoid that, you know, when you're working with them. So I think that's that's absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I used to, and I used to see the scales same. All the things we, the, all the, the myth that we see on and on debunked uh, nowadays before for me was like, if I, if I, if I'm, I see my, my weight going up, I uh, just gained fat and now it's like, no. And, and, and I know the things, but it's like this, that version of you knowing your, your things and being completely disconnected because you just want to believe what you want to see. So I think because I was so obsessed with my body, I wanted to be so hard on myself and very strict that um, I don't, I wouldn't want to see my knowledge or be permissive Oh, you know, this is what, what works. Don't stress about the scale because that's not saying that you gain weight or not. But seeing for me, for me, seeing the, the scale were, was something I just, I just can't see, see myself weighing myself. So it was like disconnected, disjointed from what I knew and applied on myself. I could apply it to anyone else, but not on myself. It was like, you got to change that and start living your own knowledge and apply it. Just experiment. Just see what happens if you eat a piece of chocolate. That's not going to make you ruin your your life or it's not going to make any, any damage. So I started doing that when I came here and experiment to be more flexible. But at the same time, I think the social media started um, – I started following people that um, used to f show that knowledge and for um, kind of making me um, realize that I wasn't alone and mm -hmm. there was like more struggles out there similar to mine and I could potentially just relax, let it go, stay on track and be much more normal. So that's that's where I'm at. I, well, I, I, <laughs> I, I think I think what, what you said there is really, really important about um, following certain people on social media who helped you realize that you weren't alone. Um, because so I, I have a very um, uh, love hate relationship with social media. I think it can be um, absolutely detrimental to somebody's mental health. But I also think that it can potentially be used for good as well in that it can give people exposure to like to, to, to practitioners like yourself, you know, um, who put out good information. Um, and you know, you're, you're not putting out information that's out there to make people feel bad about themselves. You're, you're, you're there to kind of let people know, um, what this whole dieting process is like, uh, what they can expect, what they shouldn't expect of themselves. And I think it's, it's good that you've got like, you know, your own personal experience to draw on and, and, and just basically improve what you're doing with, with people out there. So, like, you know, you're, you're definitely a force for, for good on, on social media, in, in my opinion. Um, and I try to, try to show, and I try to show them 
that it is possible to build a, a good relationship with food. It's, it's possible to heal the relationships if you feel like it's already broken or you probably won't be able to recover if you, for example, currently suffer from uh, binge eating or bulimia or like body image distortion, you can actually get better. It is all about um, delving into your own mindfulness and like reflect on what's happening. Sometimes it, it it'll, you need to even, you might need help obviously, but you, you probably are experiencing those things coming from your past. Sometimes it's something from your childhood, uh, lack of protection. Maybe you want to feel admired because you feel lonely. You love you when you were a child, um, you lost your parents or your father, or you needed that protection that no longer you, you no longer have. So sometimes it's the past that make you do those things. And sometimes in how we get to uh, find food as comfort or um, gaining weight sometimes for us uh, is like people that suffer from binge eating um, might just be that they are finding food as comfort to um, they seeing themselves be bigger, being bigger is like a shield of protection for them. So there's a lot of things that obviously a lot of psychology, there's a, a very deep um, conversations that we could probably have in another uh, moment, but it is really important how to understand that the, the person is not because suffering from something like that it's not because they're just crazy um or they completely locked but is trying to understand what happened in the past and what's going on in the present that probably is something that they need to start working on but obviously being open to change and be ready to change is one very important step that sometimes not everyone is ready so it's increase the awareness and make sure they are um, ready to step and make that change. Yeah, I, I, I think that's an absolutely essential point there is that not everybody is ready to change. Um, even, even in some situations when people do approach you of their own free will, um, I, I think as, as, a partic uh, as a practitioner, you know, you, you yourself probably have your ways of let's say, reading people or reading people's intentions when it comes to what they want to do. And it, it, it does happen that some people approach you and you can tell this person potentially isn't ready for what they need to do um, to, to, to bring about, you know, change in their life. Um, I think also just because you touched on it there, the mental health side of, of you know, let's say overeating or, uh, you know, you mentioned there are some eating disorders, disordered eating, binge eating disorder, up until recently, it has been really, really overlooked. It's not something people have considered much at all, but it is a huge aspect. And, it, you know, some people could look at it as being potentially one of the most important aspects when it comes to helping somebody with whatever's going on in, the, in their food life because, you know, it's an underlying issue that, you know, you really, really need to, to deal with. You know, um, like, for example, binge eating is, is probably just a symptom of a, a much more deep-rooted deep problem and, I, I think it's something that, you know, practitioners probably need to take more into consideration that um, we probably, sometimes we're just not equipped on our own to deal with a situation like that. And it's just better if we can, you know, work together potentially with a team of people, you know, with, with somebody who, who can, a counselor, for example, or, or somebody who can help them specifically with those feelings. So I think it's, yes, it's really, really good that you, you, you brought that up um, yourself. I, I think we, we've we've gone in a direction that I completely didn't expect, but I, I'm I'm quite happy to to have gone gone down this line, um, just just because I think it is so important to be able as a practitioner to to just think about and consider all of those other different aspects that people are going to be dealing with when they when they come to work with you. You you did mention earlier that you you tend to work with a lot of. Um, female clients is it, is it just a majority of female clients you work with or do you exclusively work with women at the moment 
No, I I actually have a few male clients, but obviously the the goals are completely different for them. It's like I want to just lose some fat, improve my performance, and I'm happy to follow a diet or whatever you give me. Um, they kind of not attach. Like when I ask them, uh, how is your relationship with food? Um, what about your um, your previous diet history? Um, these sort of things, they are like very easy going. There's not like these problems with the body image or like, oh, uh, my healthy, my relationship with food is broken. I don't like my body. But when I come to women, this is a completely different story because the main motivation for getting a coaching program is more so I need someone to help me change what I am currently living because I tried everything before. I tried every diet on the planet and it didn't work. My relationship with food is broken. My body image is is well broken. I don't like what I see in the mirror. And that's what I work with. So it is a lot of reflection it is a lot of empowerment it is a lot of building habits rather than just uh you know what i'm not gonna give you a diet don't expect don't expect that from me um we probably can work towards building a meal plan together but i'm not gonna build it by my own you're gonna help me and it's a process where I start teaching them how to make food choices that are appropriate, uh, that are much better aligned to their goals. Um, sometimes because it's a, I see it as a weekly, on a, on a weekly goals, I set weekly small goals on a weekly basis. Then I tell them, uh, let's work on this this week. Uh, what do you think? So it's always like that feedback, that back and forth, that communication. Um, on a daily basis, perhaps every two days, but I tend to speak with them quite often. So they don't feel alone or they don't feel like I'm going because I don't think I'm going through this journey and I feel lost because that's what I would like to receive. If I needed that help, I want someone to be there for me um, to kind of let me know what I'm doing right. Or if I have a question, I don't need to wait two weeks to for my appointment. And in, in these two weeks, just doing what I think is right, but perhaps it's not right. So it is that difference between male and female. It is completely different approach. So with, with males, it's more straightforward. Well, if you're happy to do that and you want performance, I, do you want me to give you, um, do you want to give you a meal plan or do you prefer to uh, start working on your on your nutrition? And they're happy to follow a meal plan and they don't get this sort of mindset of, oh, I'm just going to focus or lose, uh, lose control if I have a diet and then I gain the weight back or I ruin my relationship with food. They are more structured. And they kind of happy to follow kind of rules. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it goes against what I want to preach, but it depends where the person is at. If the person is happy to get some some much more structure and they feel good about it, um, I'm happy to do that. But I keep an eye on how they progress, and if I see something that is it could be potentially um, negative. I switch it straight away or I speak um, about the problem or what I see as a potential issue in the future. So it's always like an important feedback of what the person is looking for and where they at at that point. But looking to improve their relationship with food is my main goal because I went through that and I know how important it is to have food freedom, feel you know, in a week you have you can have pizza and say, "Oh my God, I had a pizza that's so good." Um, I could have potentially when I when I had that problem a few years ago, I could probably say I didn't eat a hamburger or 
stay in McDonald's for 10 years. Oh. That's a long time. Yeah. So there you go. I will, I will say this, and I'm just, I just, just to, to gather that, I haven't eaten in McDonald's in 19 years, okay? But there's a reason for that, because my first job as a teenager was in a McDonald's, and I have hated it ever since. And that's my reason for not going to McDonald's, so it's, uh, oh, yeah. not, it's not food-related. Um, I, I still fondly remember being back. Any, any junk food or fast food, wow. like, none of them, like pizza or... Like, even I love pizza, and I wouldn't eat it. I wouldn't. I could see it. I might have my husband eating next to me, my mom, with my mom, and they bought, like, this huge pizza, and they would offer me a, a slice, and no, I cannot eat that. Wow. And I was dying from the inside. I wanted to have it, but I couldn't. I, I, just, I just couldn't because if I had one piece, I already seen the cheese and how it was – a big fat around it just like obviously cheese is, is high in fat so like I could see physically the fat and I got no um, I'm just gonna not have that I'm just gonna get fat straight away that are like 2,000 calories to my thighs it was completely obsessed obsessive yeah so very so unhealthy having experienced that yourself and, and being able to kind of identify to a certain extent with that um, is it something that you see rather frequently amongst your female clients or, or, or even amongst male clients? Because like just one thing you, you mentioned earlier was, um, you know, the differences between kind of how you interact with male and female clients. And, and while I will say that I, I will agree with a, a lot of what you said there, I think that there's also a bit of scope for kind of, um, uh, you know, some men to also behave in that way that you said women mostly behave and some women to be very, very structured like men, for example. Um, I, I think there, there's a, li a little bit of kind of like a, more of a scale that, that we, we, we see people on. Um, but would you say that you, you see a lot of women who are suffering from that really poor relationship with food where they're, they're overly restricting um, some things? Yeah, definitely. And I could also see... Uh, nowadays, uh, currently I don't have, but um, probably two months ago, I was seeing the same sort of issues in some some male clients, like the probably more the binge eating problem, not so much the re the, the relationship with the body, but more so struggling with binge eating and emotional eating it was something very common to see as well. So I think it happens in both in both genders, uh, but it is more obviously more often to see it in women because of the society asks women to be certain way. And we gotta see a perfect body, like with six pack, beautiful. Beautiful for the society is how you look from, from, the, from the outside. Mm -hmm. And it disregards how important is the inside, the health from the oh, We have lost Astrid. I hope we find her again. Um, Astrid is back. Here we go. That was fast. Guys, if you're enjoying this, let us know down below. Here we go. Hi, Astrid. I don't know. <laughs> disappeared for a second. Um, so you, you were saying that um, the relationship that um, that was right, that women are very, very much made to feel by society that they need to be beautiful, you know, externally, physically, um, and that's kind mm -hmm. of having an effect on them. Yeah, that's correct. So we, we used to see the definition of beauty is is some, some kind what is currently defining us. Oh, we need to be certain way. We need to look this, this way. Um, when we cannot, like, if you have a slightly uh, bit of more cellulitis, cellulite in your legs, then you're ugly. Then there's a lot of different uh, beauty um, sort of rules that nowadays 
women follow, which um, that's what is affecting lots of women. Mm -hmm. I, I, I will definitely say that like that, that kind of social media and societal onslaught that women have to deal with, they, they've been dealing with it for a very, very, very long time, you know, and, and I'm not even talking about like, you know, the common media that we're familiar with now, like if we, if we did talk about um, magazines or internet, like, you know, we can go even further back and, you know, you can you talk about women's ideals in, you know, the, the early 20th and the 19th century and things like that. It's been going on for an incredibly long time. Um, but I think what's happened very, very recently, and like we could even say in the past 20, yeah, let's say 20 or so years, there's been also that kind of societal pressure going on to a subpopulation of men as well, with, because, you know, we see on social media now constantly that men are constantly exposed to, you know, images of big, muscular, very, very lean men, um, you know, like the kind of typical, like, physique competitor or bodybuilder. And, um, and I, I think that's, we're seeing a lot more um, body dysmorphia condition in, in men as well. Um, and I, I suppose... It, it's a growing population that we need to be aware of and kind of that that's going to be needing support, you know, and that does need support at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is a very, very much kind of a, I think a, a societal issue um, with just the way that uh, the, these ideals that people hold when it comes to, to, to body image. Um, yeah. I, I know Astrid that you, you know, you're very, very active when it comes to um, collaboration with, with other um with other nutritionists online. Um, and I know that you quite recently, you did uh, an article for the Alan Aragon research review where you spoke about, um, it was an article again, again on women, but you were speaking about the effects of the, the menstrual cycle um, when it comes to uh, nutrition and weight loss in women. Um, and I was wondering if we, we might be able to kind of speak a little bit about that. Um, and just because, you know, obviously, men not having a menstrual cycle means that it's a particularly huge physiological event that women have to deal with that men don't. Um, and it can have some implications for nutrition. So I was wondering if you, if you might be able to kind of give us a little bit of a run through on, on just kind of the physiology of what goes on during the menstrual cycle and, and potentially how that can affect um, a woman from, let's say, a nutrition perspective or even from, from a training perspective. Yeah, definitely. Um, oh, no, no. Okay. I don't know if um, you want to know a little bit about the actual uh, process of the, the, the menstrual cycle, but uh, what I'm going to run through what is um, the menstrual cycle uh, physiology. So talk a bit about the two main uh, protagonists of this, that is the progesterone and estrogen. This is two hormones. There are much more. But these two are kind of the main, um, the main ones that we need to focus on when it comes to these um, ups and downs and, and how we, we behave in terms of our body, how, how it responds. So um, to be more on point, I'm going to uh, use part of my notes that I have in, in here. So you might not see me looking at you. <laughs> okay. Um, so day one, day one of the menstrual cycle is obviously considered as the first time of bleeding. And it is when women begin to bleed and the lining of the uterus begins to shed. At this point, female hormones, specifically estrogen and progesterone, are at the lowest point. Um, as you have been, uh, just have fallen absolutely from the first day of bleeding. So at this instant, um, the hypothalamus is the one that controls and commands the center of the metabolism pretty much. So the, it signals to the pituitary gland to tell the ovaries to start the follicle maturation under the influence of FSH, or follicle-stimulating follicle hormone. Meanwhile, the follicle containing the eggs start to produce and secrete estrogen during the first two weeks of the menstrual cycle. We will call this follicular phase. So 
This follicular phase is called this way because the follicle is developing in the first two weeks. Therefore, estrogen, the first week, is gradually increasing. It starts relatively low and then rise and peak in the second week. Um, where the proge while progesterone is low and but steady throughout the follicular phase. We could also talk about follicular phase as two phases, early follicular phase and late follicular phase, because this is pretty much the way that we can break down the, the increasing of the estrogen and progesterone in these different weeks. So the first, the first early follicular phase would be the week one, and late follicular phase, week two. Um, during this late follicular phase, the hypothalamus secrete another hormone, which is the LH, or luteinizing hormone, that will spike, signaling the follicle to rupture and release the egg. At this instant, once the egg releases from the follicle, this latter becomes the corpus luteum, meaning the ovulation is occurring around the 14th day of an average cycle, and the body temperature also is rising. It appears that the rising of the levels of uh, estrogen um, are, that are secreted while the ovaries, and the, the follicles are uh, growing, are the primary, the primary trigger for the search of this um, um, LH to produce ovulation. Up until now, is that clear or is it yeah. still a little bit confusing? Yeah. No, I'm fine. Yeah. So once the ovulation occurs, it's kind of the it, it marks the beginning of the second phase, or what we call the luteal phase, um, because it's given because of the corpus luteum is start uh, starts to secrete the main source of uh, progesterone until the onset of the menstruation. In fact, a rise of progesterone begins to take place after the first rise of luteinizing hormones have occurred. Uh, so in the early week of the luteal phase, let's, let's break the same luteal phase in two phases, early luteal phase and late luteal phase. So in the early week, of the luteal phase, estrogen levels are still high, but progesterone levels start peaking as well. They start rising. Not as much as the second week, where the late luteal phase, progesterone levels are relatively high, even higher to progesterone, to estrogen. But both fall pretty quickly uh, if the egg is not fertilized, which initiates the menstruation and, they, and again, beginning the menstrual cycle. So that's pretty much what it, the, the physiology of and the behavior of these hormones, these two hormones look like in a normal cycle. So two, two, early, uh, two phases, follicular phase, luteal phase. Uh, pretty much fo follicular phase is about estrogen being increasing and luteal phase is progesterone increasing and peaking. So that's definitely good. Okay, so just from from working with um, you know quite a number of female clients over the years, um, it does become fairly apparent that um, women tend to change a little bit around the time of their of, of menstruation, around the time of their period, and two of the most common things that I I, I hear or and, and that I observe is one. Um, women tend to gain a little bit of weight, or at least some of my clients do. Um, they tend to get a little bit bloated. And then another issue that I hear about quite frequently amongst women around the time of their period is an increase in hunger or an increase in cravings for food. Um, is there any particular reason why those those things might occur? Yeah. When we understand the estrogen physiology and, like, its role um, versus the progesterone role, 
we obviously understand why these things happen. So uh, when estrogen is elevated and dominating, as opposed to progesterone, uh, this becomes the prime for, like, it is a, a hormone that it is for building muscle. It is a hormone that is, uh, uh, like, it burns. It can help you to uh, translate to improve the insulin sensitivity. It is a hormone that kind of goes aligned with all the things we're actually against with about estrogen. Estrogen is the, it is not a bad guy or a bad girl. Let's talk about uh, uh, like a hormone, not a, a, good, a bad one. So estrogen itself uh, is a, it's globally a fat-burning hormone. And as it has some insulin sensitizing effects, um, it is slightly speeds up the metabolic processes as and has a weak anabolic properties. That's what I was talking about. It's very much like testosterone, but it's much more mild and allows women to burn more fat as a relative, a relative percentage at exercise intensity compared to men. It also behaves as cortisol antagonist. So it helps with the stress tolerance. What it means is usually um, increases of stress, um, stress tolerance, increase of cortisol levels are more uh, related to increases of progesterone. When progesterone is higher, there's less tolerance to stress, and therefore we're more likely to gain more fluid, more water. It's the weight is coming from weight, um, the water weight we start retaining in our body because of that increase of uh, prostaglandins and progesterone and cortisol is a little bit all over the place in the second the second half of the menstrual cycle mm -hmm. and that's where we see it um so progesterone on the other hand um it is known as um as one hormone that it is more likely to antagonize estrogen. What everything that estrogen does, this one antagonizes it. So when progesterone is around, women are less insulin sensitive. Metabolism is isn't as ramped up as it might be when estrogen is around. Um, it, is, it although it has some cortisol antagonistic antagonistic effects too. It is much weaker than when it's estrogen is around. So women might be more stress reactive, hence my, they, women might benefit from taking the second half of the menstrual cycle to relax, ease up. So reduce the training load, um, get themselves a little bit more time for themselves to relax. Um, so they are able to manage better the, the, the stress stress um, lower. Um, so in this section as well, when uh, progesterone is really high, women tend to tolerate less high doses of carbohydrates because insulin resistance or the insulin sensitivity tends to go down a bit. So that's where um, it, it is a little bit higher to um, easier to store fat uh, as compared to the first follicular phase because we tend to have a little bit less insulin sensitivity and when it, there is insulin sensitivity down, then we tend to be much hunger, hungrier. So that's where cravings increase as well. Um, so that's what... So you were mentioning that... Um, so some of the reasons why women are, uh, let's say, less stress tolerant um, during, uh, during menstruation uh, and then to the latter half of their, their menstrual cycle because of the changes in estrogen and progesterone. Um, when, it comes to, when it comes to how you interact with female clients and how you work 
around their um, around their period to kind of to accommodate that. What kind of things do you do from a nutritional ex, um, perspective? So I give them the flexibility to um, let them have the the nutrition kind of periodize. So they have, let's say, we I recommend to my clients. Well, let's go a bit harder um, in the first two weeks. So if we're gonna because I currently work with, with clients in a more uh, sensitive way, let's say, um, focusing on other things rather than just looking the scales drop or weight loss and relationship with food and other things. Um, I am currently don't, don't work as much of, well, let's really work on getting um, very low calories this week and then the next week we might be able to do another adjustments, but um, the last four two weeks of your menstrual cycle we we're going to be more flexible. So that's what I would do if I had a, an athlete or someone that is not necessarily uh, focused on improving the relationship with food, but more so um, a specific goal as a competition or as an athlete. Um, I would say. Um, the, the way that would periodize the nutrition would be more focused on um, if they need to lose fat or adjust their strength levels, increase um, building, building muscle, then the first two weeks are the, the best ones to go as hard as possible. And the second two weeks is to kind of deload or have a, a small refit or a small diet breaks, things that will just ease and help them in, uh, increasing the adherence to the, the, the program. And at the same time, don't go off the, the, the way. So they can still be able to make, get results, but they're aligned with, they're listening to the body. They know uh, what is going to help them get through that period especially the second two weeks um there's a lot of uh, evidence saying that women are most likely to increase their caloric intake uh for about 600 calories um which can obviously impact if someone is trying to lose weight and that's something that I, they're probably not intentionally thinking about but it's something that they just craving and they wanting to eat more and it is usually uh, something, a comfort food or something with chocolate or something that um, has some uh, precursors of serotonin that your body doesn't know it. You, know, you don't know it, but your body knows what it wants uh, to create that sensation of relaxation, comfort. So because you need, um, you have less stress tolerance in the second, in the second two weeks of your menstrual cycle, you're more likely to uh, start seeking for these sort of comfort foods or these um, precursors of um, serotonin that might give you that relaxation you're looking for. So can I can I just check to see if if, if I kind of understand this correctly? So um, you're saying around the, those second uh, two weeks or that second half of the menstrual cycle, it might be advantageous for women to um, just because of kind of, let's say, the lower tolerance for stress and the, the, the increased kind of uh, cravings, it might be beneficial to incorporate some foods that, like incorporate potentially more calories or a, a incorporate more foods that women might potentially have a, a craving for, like like you mentioned, chocolate as, as one example. And then would it be also safe enough to assume that you would consider reducing the the intensity or the, the amount of work that they're doing in the gym. Does that sound about right? Yeah. So I'm going to give you a quick summary. Um, so follicular phase refers to the two the first two weeks and the luteal phase, the two weeks after ovulation, right? Um, estrogen is much higher relative to progesterone in the first two weeks and progesterone is relatively higher to estrogen in the second two weeks. Right? So during the follicular phase, two first weeks, women should be able to train harder, 
eat more, move more, and deal with life a little bit better since estrogen has those nice effects. Um, it has been observed that energy intake is usually lower or reduced before and before and at the time of ovulation. So hunger and appetite is not as, as high in these two first weeks. So it is good to, uh, if you're going to start a diet or restrict calories, start dieting, this is the best time to kind of start it because you're not going to be crazy for that cravings, especially in these first two weeks. Um, so whereas energy intake and hunger is increased after ovulation when progesterone levels are elevated, as well as the temperature, the basal body temperature. Then with ovulation and the, at, at the start of the luteal phase, so the second two weeks, women would benefit from switching into a more relaxed type approach where they should have more time for themselves and for recovery, less intense exercise, but without stopping completely, lots of walking, as well as aiming to eating less calories overall and less amounts of starchy carbohydrates since there is uh, reduced insulin sensitivity. So that's kind of the summary of what I just said. Okay. Um, so you did mention about kind of reducing carbohydrates uh, uh, specifically in that, um, that two-week period. Obviously, so women and like people in general, when people have cravings, most people have a lot of cravings mm -hmm. for, you know, high carbohydrate foods. Um, and, oh, sorry, my lights have gone off. Uh, so they have a craving for those high carbohydrate foods. And I was wondering, do you see or do you consider there to be any benefit from potentially preempting, let's say, you know, there, there is a risk of somebody overeating when they are particularly stressed um, and when they're, they're craving a lot of foods. Do you think it might be ever be beneficial to just say, okay, look, you're going to overeat anyway during this period. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some extra food. I'm going to incorporate that into your diet um, so that we're, we're, we're avoiding you getting overly hungry or having, oh, uh, you know, excessive cravings. Uh, does that ever strike you as being a kind of a, a useful strategy with some people? Yeah. So what, when it comes to these sort of strategies, you always want to look at the, the client or the, the person's uh, status and how they deal with the stress and how they uh, deal with emotions and with food. Uh, generally from the, theoretical perspective this is what i just said is what it happens uh, or what should be ideal optimal now from adherence perspective or psychological point of view obviously you can turn this around because and i've seen this a lot even on myself the first two weeks i'm actually more likely to feel a little bit more bloated because of the pain uh the, the first two or three days of the menstrual cycle are very painful or tend to be quite uncomfortable. So those days for me, uh, I tend to reduce my energy, my exercise, my activity. Um, and so what you want to, to look at the menstrual cycle as a whole, you want to look at it as, um, okay, we can make any sort of periodization in these four weeks. It doesn't have to be exactly um, how the theory tells us, as long as you do some ups and downs with your calories, your exercise, and you are able to do a little bit of both things. So theoretically, you should be able to train harder in the first two weeks and train less in the last two weeks, um, which can be actually a good thing but at the same time, if you're more likely to uh, resist or being able to eat more during the first two weeks, or you're able to actually, because there, there's not much uh, appetite, you might be able to get, go really low or go really good with your diet the first two weeks and maybe just adjust or calorie cycling in the last two weeks. Is something that you could potentially do. You adjust depending on what the the client's overall. You want to look at the whole month, perhaps, 
and or on a weekly basis and how the average of calories, protein, um, carbohydrates is on a weekly basis, an average, so you can adjust on the go. Okay, so so it, it, it might be beneficial kind of for kind of things for the people listening to think of it in, in, in a sense that if we have, let's say, almost a monthly calorie goal um, and adherence is our key, if we can keep those calories nice and low in those first two, uh, first two weeks um, when, you know, you're also able to train particularly intensive, that, was, that would be when we would have kind of like, let's say, the, the, the majority of, if, if fat loss is a goal, for example, or even maintenance, you can have a, a bit of a deficit there and then you can kind of relax that and it, it may become like a slight surplus potentially in those last two weeks. But, you know, in, in the context of a, of a whole month, you could potentially keep somebody at maintenance or even keep some, get somebody into a, a deficit overall. Would that be right? Correct. So at the end of the day, what, it, what, what matters is the energy balance uh, on, on the, looking at the whole picture on a bigger chunk of time, not on a daily basis, but maybe on a weekly or fortnight, maybe. Uh, so you can see the trends and the overall, like where at the end of the two weeks, was this person still able to be on a deficit or on a surplus? So you can work around that as well. Just, just out of curiosity, so obviously, you know, we hear a lot about um, kind of potential strategies and potential ways of dealing with um, dealing with the menstrual cycle or eating around the menstrual cycle or, or eating around different phases of the month. Um, and I'm I'm curious, like from your own perspective, do you ever kind of hear things or information, you know, potentially from clients or, or read them on social media that you you're so incredibly frustrated with hearing because you know that they're just incorrect around nutrition uh, or women's nutrition and, and nutrition around the, the, the period. Um, is there anything that you, you find to be particularly infuriating because it's just so wrong? I think I, I hear this a lot, but more so when it comes to dealing with PCOS, uh, there's a lot of different things that I just, I'm sick of hearing and I know that actually affects more the relationship with food with so many women suffering and going through PCOS. Um, I know this one was a topic that we would talk about a little bit further along the way, but I think um, in mental cycle, it's more so, there's always the same sort of uh, common myth we hear, and women are the ones that can be more affected than, than male in this, in this sense about or you probably don't have try to don't have carbohydrates after 6 p.m. or these sort of things that you might hear a lot and like okay you, you can have carbohydrates anytime it's, it depends on what you eat and how much and how frequent you have them um, so more in PCOS if if you want to touch and talk about it. I, I actually, I would love to get into PCOS, but I am very, very conscious of your time. And I'm just thinking it might be really, really good to have you back and speak about, uh, we could pro probably do a whole episode just speaking about P PCOS. Um, but like I said, I am very, very conscious of your time. Um, but I think one thing just before we, we kind of start concluding this is one thing that I wanted to ask you, um, and this is kind of going back to, uh, your own, uh, what we started the, this conversation about and kind of relationships with food potentially. But uh, I, I, I like to kind of ask some of my guests this, and it's if just knowing everything that you know now, and it can be about um, nutrition or it can be life in general if you want to go very, very deep on it. Um, if you were able to go back and speak with yourself 10 years ago and you were able to kind of impart one piece of important information to yourself, what would you say? I would say it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, if you life, life happens and you can be more flexible with yourself and still make progress. So, because always my, my goal was to feel good, look good and, 
improve that relationship that I had with my body and my own self-esteem, it was, it, it would have been just so simple to just say, if you go out of track today, just go back on track. Nothing is going to happen. You can, you cannot fail if you go back on track. Um, stop worrying about what people say about you and like, don't, don't just don't give a fuck of what <laughs> people think or people's opinion, because they always will criticize. Even if you have, if you're good looking, if you're looking really good, they find something to criticize you on. Um, so it doesn't matter what you do. You always get critiques from everyone. But instead, if you focus on trying to enjoy as much as possible your each moment. So I, my motto, my motto is live life, love, learn. Try to use that as a, your main sort of driver. You want to live your, your life, keep learning along the way, um, love what you do and show love for the rest of the people and that's it. I think that's a, a fantastic um, kind of little tidbit of advice to give to people. Um, not caring about uh, what other people think and uh, kind of just getting on with your own life is uh, something that a lot of people, like uh, even myself, we need to uh, need to, to get a better hold on, I, I, I think. Um, Astrid, I, I've absolutely loved having this chat with you. And like I said, I think we could... We could continue this chat on potentially for a long time, but I'd prefer to have you back another time so we can speak about it again. Um, just for anybody, um, uh, if they want to kind of follow your work, follow what you do, and they're not doing so already, how can they, how can they find you? Uh, they will follow, find me in Instagram as an anti-diet dietitian. Uh, that's pretty much where I do most of my presence. I have my, my most of my presence. I have... A little bit of LinkedIn and Facebook, but that's just with my name, Astrid Naranjo, and that's it. That's okay, all. and that's anti-diet and then underscore dietitian, right? Yeah, correct. Okay, so everybody, if anybody who's, who's watching this isn't following um, Astrid already, you know what you have to do today, um, follow her. Uh, she puts out some amazing content. She has some incredible infographics um, that you, you really, really need to see. Um, and um, uh, as I said, Astrid, I've had an amazing time speaking with you tonight. Thank you so much for giving us so much time. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again very, very soon. Yeah, I was actually thinking that for the next time we could talk about PCOS and potentially um, how I got into social media and work on like infographics or like contributions to uh, other research review and things like that. That, that would be amazing. And you've just made my job easier because I don't need to come up with a, a topic. So <laughs> thank you very much. Um, so Astrid, thank you. Um, am I saying good night or am I saying good afternoon to you in Australia? Um, good morning. I think good morning. Okay. Well, good morning um, and have a great day. And uh, we will talk again very, very soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. I'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast, so please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.